The COVID-19 pandemic has forced global change. We work differently, we shop differently, we interact differently. After a year of living with the virus, Post Media's post-pandemic project is taking an in-depth look at the significant social, institutional, and economic issues the pandemic has brought to light in Canada and how it's reshaping the country. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. National Post health reporter Sharon Kirkey joins me to discuss where Canada is at one year into this pandemic, whether we're through the worst of it, and what a post-COVID world could look like. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Sharon, COVID-19 has been in Canada for a little over a year, and we're approaching a year since provinces took very strict measures to help ward off the virus. But where are we at in terms of the pandemic? Are we at the end of the second wave? Are we at the beginning of a third wave? Somewhere in between, I think, the second wave, that curve has been trending downward for a couple of weeks now in most parts of the country. Confirmed cases and hospitalizations and deaths, they're all falling. I checked this morning just before we got on this call. I think we recorded just over 2,600 cases yesterday compared to 14,000 at the end of December. So that's good. What is increasing, though, is the number of confirmed cases of those variants that are causing you know, so much concern. We've had about 600 confirmed cases of the variant first found in Britain and a couple of dozen of the variant from South Africa and one from Brazil. And, you know, there are almost certainly more of them out there that we, you know, haven't yet detected. And, and it's because of those variants that a lot of experts say, you know, we look to be heading to another third wave because, you know, this virus, like so many, is really cagey and unpredictable. And yet, even yesterday, Dr. Eileen Davila, who's Toronto's medical officer of health, she said she's never been more afraid or more worried about the future than she is now, which is, you know, pretty alarming 10 months into this virus. Mm-hmm. And again, mostly because of the variants. And, and that's the reason why she's asked for the lockdown in Toronto and Peel regions to be extended for at least another two weeks. So, you know, the worry is that another storm is brewing and, you know, and, and that by the time the case numbers become big enough to, you know, shock us or surprise us that it'll be too late that the third wave will actually be upon us. Now, as someone who covers health and medical issues, what has been for you most interesting to cover this biggest story for this sustained a period? Is it looking at how different countries have managed the virus or is it the speed with which we've developed new vaccines or is there something else that kind of sticks out for you as we reach kind of the anniversary of all of this mess? I think the thing that has most surprised me really is just how quickly and dramatically our lives did change because of this virus. I remember speaking with Stephen Taylor. He's this clinical psychologist at the University of British Columbia, and he actually studies pandemics and the psychology of pandemics. And I was speaking to him way back, you know, early, mid-February 2020, when we were still seeing like, you know, just a trickle of cases of COVID-19. You know, and the messaging back then was still Canada was at, quote, low risk, low risk. So, but I asked Stephen Taylor, I said, you know, what do you think is coming? And he told me we would see 
entire cities in Canada, much like Wuhan, China, in lockdown. I mean, that we wouldn't have drones patrolling the streets, but mm-hmm. people would be told to stay at home. You know, there'd be forced quarantine for several weeks. We would go into effective citywide lockdowns. And I remember thinking, that would never happen here. That could not possibly happen in Canada. And you said, you know, masks would be made mandatory. Everyone would soon be wearing them. We'd mm-hmm. be wearing them to, you know, get into public spaces. And again, I couldn't imagine, you know, it really happening. But it did. And he predicted that we'd see panic buying and conspiracy theories and this proliferation of quack cures. You know, remember Trump and his anti-malaria pills. And, you know, it all seems so dystopian, but he reminded me that these things have happened in pandemics going back to like medieval plagues. And it did play out again with COVID. You know, the only other thing, it was also just how unbelievably quickly medicine and science have responded to this virus, right? You know, it's remarkable, really, that one year out we have vaccines. When you think about it, it usually takes years or even, you know, decade to develop a safe and effective vaccine. But it wasn't, it's not just the vaccines, you know, doctors and nurses and researchers throughout this pandemic have really been sharing their experiences like in, in almost real time. You know, we benefited from that here in Canada because we had started in New York City stressed out ER doctors began warning other doctors, you know, don't rush to put people with severe COVID on ventilators that, you know, the tubes and the pressures seem to be making things even worse. It was from kind of the sacrifices, right, from the first patients, the people who died in those big, horrible waves in New York and Italy and other countries that we were able to learn here how to better manage those severe cases. So I I guess that's it, you know, just the astonishing rapid sharing of information that doctors have told me is unlike anything they've ever seen in their lifetimes. In recent weeks, we've seen some positive signs in Canada and elsewhere. There's been declining numbers of new cases. There's hopefully good news about an increase in vaccine doses coming to Canada. We're hearing that there could be millions more doses than planned coming in the next quarter. Are we at the point where we're seeing an end in sight, or is this going to be maybe a summer like we had last summer where we got to loosen up a bit, but then things clamp down again in the fall? Well, you know, those are all good signs for sure. We've managed in many places to vaccinate all of our long-term care residents and staff working in those places and many frontline health workers. So really the most vulnerable people, the people who are at highest risk of getting COVID and, and dying from it. But, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. I read this great short editorial in The Scientist about how, you know, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel because of the vaccines, but we're still kind of traveling through the tunnel. And it's just not about getting Canadians vaccinated, but really the world vaccinated, because if we leave poor developing countries out in the rain, if we don't supply them with vaccines as well, the virus will mutate, you know, it'll mutate and will spill over again. So we really need to up our global surveillance as well to, to really, you know, monitor the virus as it, as it keeps mutating and spreading. So yeah, light at the end of the tunnel, but it's still probably at least a good year before we get through it. Mm-hmm. Now, what is it about the mutations and variants in this virus that we're seeing that's so concerning that has people worried? Well, the biggest concern is that they appear to be more contagious, right? So let's take the variant that was first identified in the UK, and that's known as B117. So it's thought to be between 40 and 70% more contagious, meaning it spreads that much more quickly and more easily than the older circulating strains. 
the worry now is that there is some data suggesting it may be more deadly, that it may be associated with an increased risk of dying compared to the dominant circulating strains. But again, more more research is needed to really confirm that. Also, I guess what's concerning is what we still haven't figured out, right? What we still don't know, like how widely have these new variants spread? You know, is the disease that they cause any different? And how effective are vaccines against them? And the other alarming thing about this is that, remember, viruses mutate all the time, but the concern is that the virus that causes COVID-19 is not only mutating, it's mutating in similar ways. So these variants, whether the variant from the UK or South Africa or Brazil, they all share some of the same critical mutations, even though they came from like three very different parts of the world, right? Mm -hmm. And all those mutations make it easier for the virus to latch onto ourselves. And so the fact that these mutations have occurred not once, but three times at least in different parts of the world suggests it's getting what's known as convergent evolution, right? They're all following the same path. And anytime you have mutations that come up independently from each other in multiple places, that's a worry. Based on what we know about the variants, could we see cases follow similar trends to the initial wave last spring of COVID-19? Or will the vaccine rollout tamp some of that down and so you won't see the same outbreak trends? Well, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines appear to be effective against the British variant, which, yeah, that gives us something to cheer about, right, when we think about vaccinations. But they are less effective against the strain from South Africa, which is now the dominant strain. And that strain has started to pop up here now. Like we had five cases of the South African variant at a condo in Mississauga, just outside of Toronto. And the concern here, and it's rather alarming, is that in those five cases, they think the people got infected with this variant from South Africa after like mere minutes of being exposed to someone else. So meaning like they, they passed someone in the hallway or they had a brief elevator ride with them. That's very different, right, from what we've been hearing up until now about how the old strains, you, need, you know, you needed about 15 minutes of sustained close contact to really increase your risk of getting infected. So mm-hmm. if we're now looking at mere minutes that it takes for these variants to spread, that's pretty worrisome as well. Let's say that we don't see huge outbreaks in these variant cases. We make it through 2021, deal with some of the issue of herd immunity, vaccination rollouts. What do the next couple of years look like? Well, I wrote about that this week. I spoke with Dr. Nicholas Christakis. He's a doctor and uh, medical sociologist at Yale. And he's just written a book about the pandemic. He wrote it while he himself was in lockdown, and he looked at the ways it might change our lives. So he sort of sees the future, immediate future, in three phases. The first one, the, the phase we're in now, he thinks that'll last until the end of 2021, when we will achieve herd immunity, either you know through vaccination. By then, every Canadian who wants to be vaccinated, as the Prime Minister keeps telling us, will happen by September. Mm -hmm. So we should have achieved herd immunity either through vaccination or a combination of vaccination with people just being naturally infected. Then Christakis sees a second period, which lasts from beginning of 2022 to early 2024. you know, I can kind of hear people groaning already, right? Oh my God, 2024. <laughs> but what he sees is that 
from 2022 to 2024, we're going to be like sort of mopping up from the tsunami, right? We're, we're going to be dealing with the economic fallout, the social fallout, the mental health problems, helping people with long COVID, you know, the so-called recovered who are still struggling with heart and lung problems and other problems. I mean, the piece I'm working on right now is about how Toronto doctors are leading international efforts to come up with an official diagnosis for long COVID, which they say can affect up to 20% of people who recover from an infection with this virus. But by 2024, you know, Christakis thinks that's when we enter the third phase. He, he describes this as sort of the 21st century roaring 20s, right? Like what happened after the First World War in the 1918 pandemic 100 years ago. You know, Christakis says people will flock to clubs, They'll flock to restaurants, you know, stadiums, concerts. There will be this huge booming economy. He says we'll see this huge growth in arts and entrepreneurships. The worst will finally be behind us. So that's appealing to me, this this hope of this new joie de vivre. It seems a really hopeful thought, but do you think we'll really see a roaring 20s for the new millennium? Or are there still too many unknowns with this virus, including whether... Even vaccinated people could become reinfected or could become spreaders of new strains. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's still lots of unknowns, right? Well, you know, take, aside from the variants that we're aware of now, will more infectious variants emerge? Probably, or possibly, will there be more deadly? Hopefully not. The questions around once you're vaccinated, how long does immunity last? Is it three months, six months, a year? We we still don't know. Will we need annual boosters? Mm-hmm. What about kids? We're only now testing the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines on kids, right? And, you know, we need to have kids vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. So those are all unanswered things, right? And and also just the slow rollout of the vaccine. You know, that's the biggest and most serious problem right now. As you wrote in your most recent piece, we seem to have not learned all the necessary lessons from the SARS outbreak 17, 18 years ago. What lessons did we not learn? And do you think we will have learned them through COVID-19? Or is it just we've gotten to a place where people don't trust the government, people are worried about, you know, vaccine procurement and whether the government's telling us the truth and all of those issues that we could be in a similar situation should another virus like this show up? Or, you know, even worse, if a variant strain really takes hold and we're still stuck in this same mess where people don't trust the government and we don't have vaccines and all of those things. I remember reading about the precautionary principle, right? That the safest approach in any unfolding crisis is to act fast. And and we didn't do that on several levels, right? We waited too long to close the borders to international travelers. Our federal health leaders waited too long to recommend masking. We let our national stockpile of personal protective equipment, PPE, unbelievably not fall apart and expire. We had cases where nurses were told to reuse masks, even if they were, quote, grossly soiled. You know, that lack of PPE was one of the reasons for that unbelievably shamefully high death rates in our long-term care homes. Mm -hmm. We didn't have enough PPE, and what we did have, we saved for hospitals. And again, we kept hearing over and over again, the risk was low until it very much wasn't low, right? (laughs) And then, you know, on a global scale, many say the outbreak should never have happened if we had been serious about containing illegal animal markets. 
But here at home, you know, we were warned again and again, right, that our hospitals had zero surge capacity. We went into lockdowns because we had to protect our ICUs from becoming overwhelmed and our hospitals from becoming overwhelmed, right? Mm-hmm. And we've had for years warnings about chronic underfunding of public health, and that slowed our efforts to do really good testing and contact tracing. So it's almost like every outbreak is a, quote, wake-up call, but we panic, right? And then we forget. Ross Upshur, this expert in public health at the University of Toronto, once said to me, it's like hitting the snooze button, right? (laughs) And we have to learn the lessons all over again. And we can only hope that the lessons we've learned this time, that we will remember them and we will act on them because otherwise we will remain completely unprepared when the next one hits and there is no question there will be another one, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, respiratory pandemics come around every five or 10 years. H1N1 we had in 2009. Luckily, H1N1 was a mild influenza, but the next one might be COVID 2.0. So we come out of this in a couple years, maybe we get a roaring 20s, maybe we don't see a pandemic for a few years, but things have changed over the last year and things may stay that way. What do you think changes in a post-COVID world? Well, everyone's crystal ball gazing right now, right? <laughs> How will this change our world? Will it be profound and during lasting changes? Who knows? But I guess most people think we'll see things like fewer people shaking hands that you know won't disappear entirely. For sure, more work from home will be the norm for those who have the privilege of being able to work from home. Nick Christakis from Yale He thinks we're going to see a change in gender relations just because of the millions of women who had to drop out of the workforce to take care of kids. So we could see huge numbers of women leaving the labor market. Mm -hmm. Things like telemedicine, right? Almost all appointments in the future with your doctor will probably be done by phone or Zoom or FaceTime, you know, unless you absolutely have to see your doctor. The trust question you raised earlier is interesting. Will we be less trusting, not just of government, you know, will we be less trusting of others, right, of strangers? Bill Gates says things like, you know, we'll go into the office less, that downtowns will become less important. But Christakis thinks people will return to the cities, that once we're in that roaring 20s era, that young people are going to want to make up for lost time, right? They're going to be flocking to outdoor festivals and concerts. But but older people, people like you and me, we might be more reflective, right? We might be thinking about what's most meaningful in, in our lives. Mm-hmm. We might be more keeping to our immediate social and family circles. But things won't go back to normal, whatever that means for different people, for a while. Not until the world beats back COVID. I guess the one question I keep wondering is, will we go back to blindly blowing droplets onto birthday cake <laughs> every year? Yeah, that one. And, <laughs> and worrying, will we cover our mouths when we laugh out loud? Worrying about how, you know, will we kiss? How will we feel about kissing someone on the cheek? And, mm-hmm. and all of those things, hugging. It'll be interesting to see. I hope that we don't lose those things, right? I think physical touch is so important. We're social creatures by nature. So it'd be really unfortunate if we lost those really meaningful gestures. It's been a wild year. Thank you very much for all your hard work covering this story. And thanks for your time with us today. Oh, it's always my pleasure. Thanks so much, Dave. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Sharon Kirky. You can find Post Pandemic at postpandemic.nationalpost.com. 
I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.